Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello, welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. We're all about the stories that make the Asian tech ecosystem so exciting, so dynamic. And in the ATP studio today, we have the chairman and CEO of Caprica International. His career spans leadership positions in American, Japanese, Chinese, and Indian companies. He started seven companies spanning 14 countries, including participating in two IPOs. Joining us from Singapore, Paul Bradley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Graham. Pleasure to be here. Paul, I kept your introduction short, not as any sort of disservice to your experience, but there's so much to talk about today. And I think we're going to dive into this because your story is fascinating to me. I'm sure to the listeners as well, because it is a journey. And it's constantly evolving. There's so many chapters to it. So I really want to talk about that. So before we, you know, we dive in and talk about the story, it'd be good to understand what it is that you do at Caprica and what that is and, you know, what it is that keeps you busy on a day-to-day basis in Asia. Well, my, my career really coming to Asia was with supply chain management, logistics and building ventures in that space. Um, after being involved with uh, a few IPOs and building a number of businesses here, uh, I realized that the, the, the transformation, the digital disruption, these changes are enormous that are about to impact us over the next 10 years. So coming back from India where I was running a company with uh, Mr. Ajay Mittal, I wanted to touch a number of things. So Caprica International is my holding company. From that, I get involved with uh, being a CEO mentor to different small-medium enterprises in Asia, uh, helping them restructure and, and plan out their wider strategies. Um, I mentor and serve on the board of different tech startups, from logistics tech to med tech to uh, fintech, etc. And, and frankly, those are the opportunities where I get to learn. Uh, there's so much for all of us to absorb with the changes coming up. So Caprica is a holding entity. It just gives me a chance to pivot across startups, SMEs, and then I'm also on the board of, uh, of an investment bank uh, finance group called Avista uh, and, and several university boards. So it's really a, a holding place for me to touch a lot of different things where hopefully I'm making an impact, but I'm also learning from everyone at the same time. Yeah, that learning part is a really interesting part of your story because I've seen a lot of the content that you shared about some of your experience as well. Let's sort of dive into that a little bit. You served under Dr. Victor Fung at Lee and Fung in Hong Kong logistics company. And also you mentioned Mittal Senior in Bombay. So, I mean, th- these are really, you know, uh, this as, as a mentoring opportunity you know, to get to work with people like that. It must be pretty amazing. And th- this is a theme that sort of replicates in your career. And I'll talk about that. So just talk about these two experiences first, and then maybe we can sort of backtrack and talk about how you got to Asia in the first place. So there is a an, a logistics company in Bombay listed on the stock exchange there. I mean, that's kind of an interesting detour from where you were going when you were first heading to Asia. How did that happen? And tell us a little bit about the, you know, working with the Mittals there. Well, uh, m- maybe I just need to tie it back. So um, at, at least so it makes sense. I came to Asia with NYK Line, which is the shipping arm of Mitsubishi Group, as the first gaijin to head the Far East Management Center out of Hong Kong. So that was a phenomenal experience to learn about Japanese culture, to be involved in setting up businesses in China, Asia, and studying the shipping patterns of major branded companies, uh, including a cartel at that time we had called Anera and TWRA where the main shipping lines would meet. So that was my entry to Asia. I then moved to Singapore, uh, set up a, a JV for two U.S. companies uh, with supply chain uh, and logistics for companies like McDonald's and Exxon, DuPont and Dow, etc. And that was a lot of fun uh, touching a different space and then uh, Dr. Victor Fung, someone I've always admired as one of the leading, uh, you know, business uh, visionaries in Asia and globally for supply chain, he invited me to come up. I met with him and, and he invited me first to start the first 4PL uh, model in Asia, uh, fourth party logistics, 
Uh, we did it with a number of fascinating uh, client customers like Sara Lee and Gillette and Diageo and others. Uh, and during that time, I got to know uh, Mr. Mittal, uh, who w- was a friend, a former customer, uh, and I knew him from a trading group, and I didn't know that that was the Mittal Builders, uh, who's a major uh, real estate family in India. And so within Lian Fung, I learned a lot from Victor. He's an amazing uh, thought leader, and he's always generous with his time. So ultimately, I ran three companies with him when we uh, when we bought over Inchcape and restructured it uh, with Ben Chang and others heading the group. And then we took it uh, public on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, and four of us accompanied Victor with that global tour. So it was a phenomenal learning experience about how to take a company public from one of the top billionaires in Asia. And so that was a, a great opportunity. And then after building you know, that business, three different companies, um, and running Singapore as well, uh, we built some new models in, in the supply chain space, like regional SCM hubbing and floating warehouses and things like that. And then Ajay Mittal invited me to come to India and let's start a new model of logistics in India. Let's build an integrated logistics company. I want to, as he said, I want to own the first free trade warehousing zone cities in the history of India, a new concept, and also our own railroads. So he really drove that as chairman and CEO. I supported him as president of the group for the first four and a half years. And and again, just a phenomenal opportunity, uh, building up a team, eight offices in, in India. We expanded to Dubai, Qatar, and Oman, and IT in Singapore as well. But we basically built the first two free trade warehousing zone logistics cities, 380 acres each. Uh, one in Bombay outside the main port, one in Delhi. Um, they're really expanding now and, and thriving under Ajay's leadership. Uh, we actually bought a license and set up our own railroad. So 18 trains, 90 containers each moving across India. And then logistics, 3PL, 4PL, and an IT company. So that was our model. And we actually did a reverse merger on the main board of the Bombay Stock Exchange. Uh, took it public. Uh, and the stock went up significantly. And again, it was just an amazing opportunity for an American being in Asia to be that deep uh, and connected to Indian culture and get to know the families and uh, the culture of India, which was a, a great experience, uh, similar to you had when you came to Japan originally. Hmm. And, uh, and again, great friends in India, and, and I'll always stay connected. And then I left, uh, came back to Singapore, set up Caprica, but I remain connected. And now that the VAT has gone through uh, this July, Ajay is in a really unique position to build up that Arshia company to a whole new level, I think, over the next five years. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what he's done and, and to be part of that group in a small way. So, um, yeah, I'm connected to India as well, and, and it was quite an exciting opportunity that I'm quite grateful for. Yeah, I bet, and a learning experience, as you say. So, to understand, you moved from Hong Kong to India. Was that an easy decision for you to make? Because you talk about moving, being an American, moving to Asia. I mean, you can move from anywhere in the States to Singapore today, and there's not really a lot of difference in terms of adjustment, is there? Okay, maybe the weather's different, maybe the food's different, but you can pretty much have everything you had back in the States. But moving from Hong Kong to India, how was that for you? Was it an easy decision to make? Because I can obviously see that working with the Mittals would have been a fantastic opportunity. But how was that with you at the time as a, as a sort of a career path? Was it, some, was it a bit of a risk to take or what? How did you sort of process that? Well, I, I was living in Singapore at the time. So I was running the, the Lee and Fung companies that I was involved in out of Singapore, but again, flying across the region. Uh, and, then, and then basically I was living two-thirds of the time in India and one-third of the time in Singapore. We also mm-hmm. had offices here. So literally every two and a half weeks, I'd come back for a week and then go back to India. It was was very different. When I lived in Hong Kong, I spent a lot of time building up in China with NYK line. But living in India and and being part of the culture, 
uh, unique experience. Of course, challenges with the traffic. Yeah. You know, you get you get in the car and you never know if it'll be one hour <laughs> or three and a half hours. So all you all you know to do is charge all your all your appliances before you get in the car every time. <laughs> and, and 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 you know, again, politically, it's a different environment. You have to go through different layers of government and. And, and business relationships are a very different style. So, you know, I, I would say on the one hand, it was probably the most challenging business experience I had on a personal level, but it was also one of the most thrilling, right? It, it, it's a two-sided coin. Mm. Uh, there, there are three different Mittal families in India, unrelated Mittal Steel, uh, Mittal Telecom, and Mittal Builders. So this Ajay Mittal is from the building group. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was very, very challenging. And eighteen, you know, when we all start companies with our core teams who really make the difference, uh, they're sixteen, eighteen-hour days, six and a half days a week. But you're flowing on adrenaline, and and all these other things tend to to be very light distractions because of the excitement of what you're doing and getting momentum. Yeah, and let's talk about how important inspiration is and all of that and inspiration in the form of people who really mentor you in those positions because it's it's a position you now hold with startups around asia so you had the privilege of working with people like dr fung you talk about mittal other examples as well i know for example you've been very generous in sharing your journeys as well on linkedin some of the pictures of your your encounters, random encounters, as well as planned ones with people in not just the, the business world, but in politics as well. So you've met some pretty interesting people. So I'll just run through a few names and just curious to know about your impressions of actually meeting these people in the real and how they have sort of an impression upon you in your business life. So you've met obviously Lee Cushing, you know, Mr. Hong Kong or Mr. Superman <laughs> as he's known. I mean, people outside of Hong Kong, well, outside of Asia, probably are probably not aware of him so much, but what he's achieved in building up in Hong Kong is just nothing short of phenomenal, really. Um, some others, I mean, politics, I know you come from a political background. We haven't really sort of scratched the surface on that, but you've met Bill Clinton as well. And a few other random connections. I want to save wh- where I'm going with that one. Airports, airport lounges, random occurrences and meetings. We'll come to that in a minute. But in terms of the people that you've met and who inspired you, on your journey, who, are there any people that you can consciously name that you say, yep, that person has had a big impact on my career? Well, I, I guess the first point to your question is who are the mentors? You know, all of us in business and in life are blessed to connect with people who inspire us and teach us things directly and indirectly. But I have two mentors that literally changed my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, as a middle class uh, American from California and growing up in Las Vegas, I got involved in political campaigns when I was 15, um, and someone in politics, U.S. Senator Paul Laxalt, actually uh, identified me and invited me to come back to Washington and work for him and take a leave from college for a year, and, uh, and, and that was just an amazing experience. So he pulled me to Washington at a very young age. I, I got involved with uh, all different things, including foreign policy and military affairs, and I got to meet a lot of interesting people. And the first thing you learn from that experience is there are a lot of people, when they get a title, they get an ego, mm. and, and they change, and they treat people differently. And, and so I, I would say Washington is a great way to learn <laughs> the good and the bad about that. And then there are others, including Senator Laxalt, who just are so down to earth and so so thoughtful. So he he literally not only guided me, but he helped uh, write letters for me. I competed to work in the House of Commons on an exchange program. Mm-hmm. He helped me with that, uh, recommended me to graduate school for Thunderbird. And I'm, I, he had such an impact on my life that every year I go back and visit my brother on the East Coast, and every year I would meet with Senator Laxalt literally to thank him for the impact he had on my life and to give them updates of what I'm trying to do to help new generation talent uh, as a small way of, of, of giving back. So mm. he, he had a profound impact on my life, and I never forget that. He's now in his 90s. Um, and then the other one is when I came to Asia, there have been a lot of uh, amazing people, Ajay being one of them, uh, generously you know, guiding me with India. But Victor Fung, as a thought leader in supply chain, I never thought I'd get to work with someone of his caliber mm. and get and being invited to come in and 
and build a company and run several companies with them. Uh, he is just an extraordinary individual. You know, he has over 200 companies. He has four listed on the stock exchange. He built the first model of virtual manufacturing, yet he always will make time. Uh, he'll come in. He would meet with our team members and share his knowledge. And even when I left the company, there's always a deep loyalty to Victor. He always is available. If I come to Hong Kong once a year, I drop him a note and he says, come by the office. And he's still giving me advice on my career and what right. I'm doing. And, and you know, that, that, these are just extraordinary people that have an impact on your life. So w one of my goals is giving back and, and mm -hmm. identifying talent in Asia and helping them get into U.S. schools or Asian schools. But I would say Senator Laxalt and Victor Fung had a very profound impact as mentors to me, in addition to the, all the other business leaders I've met. Um, I, I got involved with um, World Economic Forum, uh, Forbes CO Conference, uh, Harassus, uh, some of these different G1 in Tokyo with Horisan, who's a friend. And these organizations, you know, you really get to meet amazing people and share knowledge over two to three days. And, and so that's given me a chance uh, to meet a lot of fascinating people, uh, to learn from them, and also to study different styles. So mm. where Li Kai-shing, I, I met briefly at an event, or Lakshmi Mittal, uh, you know, I, I met Bill Gates once and, and uh, when he came to Singapore. And he was, he was just super down-to-earth very humble, uh, very generous with his time. And you're thinking, you know, here's the richest man yep. in the world. And yet he's very uh, down to earth and, and, and focusing on specific individuals. And th these are just amazing leaders. He's given, as you know, tens of billions of dollars of his money back to charity. Um, and then I have met, and I'm going to leave out their names, I have met some people who, having become successful, started treating people differently, and you know those people, and, and those people don't inspire you, but those are important lessons to learn also as, uh, you know, whatever we do in our lives with business, we we can't take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, yeah, very good lesson. I'm curious how these, what you name as your mentors, the people have had a profound impact on your trajectory and career. How do they teach? Because I'm curious how, you then, you know, as you talk about giving back and being a mentor and having some kind of a role of importance in the lives of startups as well, how you then, you know, give back to those people. Is it, do they teach through just example or do they say, hey, Paul, uh, you know, you've got to do ABC, you know, and just kind of direct you in that, push you in that direction. I'm curious that how that actually works with people like that. What works best for, you know, when you go out and mentor startups as well? Well, I, I think everyone has a different style. Where Senator Laxalt was very busy, but I would work late at night as a, a young rookie, uh, you know, just doing paperwork at night. And he would just come by and and just take 10 minutes and say, what are you working on? And then suddenly invitations would appear where you could go to some amazing events as little rewards. Mm. Uh, and, and then he would give advice. And then when I left working for him, he made the effort. He said, oh, whenever you're in Washington, let's get time. Tell me what you're doing. How can I help you? How can I guide you? I even asked him for advice. Should I move to Asia, you know, originally? So it's creating a dialogue, I think. And in case of Victor, um, again, he's so busy in so many different areas, but he engages and he loves intellectual discussions. Uh, he can talk about any subject. So he kind of frees your mind and he pulls you to think more creatively. Uh, he inspires you. You know, when you meet with someone like Victor, you're energized for several days. And, and, and yet he focuses in on you individually. And also it gives you soft advice on, on, on weaknesses, how to improve, uh, how to leverage strengths. Uh, so each one has a different style, you know. And, and when, when I've had a chance, you know, to go in and mentor companies – some are, are professionals mid-career, and a lot are young college students or, or post-college who are, who are just doing amazing things that, where I'm actually learning from them at the same mm. time, which is humbling. But I, I think the first one is just studying the personality. Uh, you know, is this someone who engages or, or you need to pull them out of their shell? Uh, how do they explain 
you know, what they're doing? Do they do it visually? Do they do it verbally? Um, you know, are they full of ideas, but, but how do they interact with people around them? Because building teams is so critical to being successful in a company, including startups. So I, I, I kind of, you know, when I meet startups in different areas, I like to meet them and assess their personality and the way they're building the business and the way they talk about the team members around them. Because that's very important that they're not just focused on themselves. And, and then, uh, and then basically just try to customize how to engage with them based on, on the way that fits best with their style and personality. Yeah. I want to sort of But take, we're all learning, you know? We are all learning. And that's key, isn't it? I mean, you've, you've touched on this in a number of uh, occasions. You've talked about ego, you talked about humility and so on. And, when we go back to those leaders, how important that is in their own development and how, you know, they've managed to stay rooted and that's how they can engage people. They don't hide behind the titles and so on. And I want to talk about leadership as well with you. There's a great photo and I want to park this because I want to come back to There's a great photo of you in front of the Apollo 11 space capsule. I don't know if you remember mm. that particular instance. I want to come back You're to You're very that. thorough. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I mean, to me, when I see that, I thought, yeah, I know where this is going. This is this is kind of right on my territory. This pushes my button because you're talking about leadership. And I want to come back to that in a minute. But before we do, because I don't want to forget, because it's kind of important to throw in to this conversation about meeting people and inspirations. Now, you're at an airport. You're at a, a, a lounge. I think it might have been LAX. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. But yes, you're in yeah. the lounge and you bump into, I don't know if that's the right word to use, Muhammad Ali. Have I got the time and the place right? Is that what happened? Because for me personally, I mean, he, he's a hero. So I'm just curious about that particular incident and what kind of impression that left upon you. Yeah, it was completely out of the box. You know, when you go to certain events, you're going to meet interesting people and then it's a question of going up to them and engaging. But this was completely unplanned. When I was a kid, you know, you know, we all admired Muhammad Ali, and as you know, he just passed away what a year and a half ago. Yeah. He, he he is such an amazing icon. Not only was he the heavyweight champion of the world, uh, he he just walked away. Uh, you know, on principle, he fought against racial discrimination. He was a leader in human rights. Uh, he he spent his whole life and a lot of his personal money doing charity things inspiring youth all over the world, America, Africa, across the world, and someone I just admired since I was a kid. And and suddenly I was connecting flights. I was actually business class and got a little upgrade, a free upgrade on miles, and I'm in the first-class lounge at LAX, and, and there's Muhammad Ali sitting on the couch across from me with two bodyguards – uh, as you know, he had a little bit of a health problem the latter stage of life, so his hand's shaking a little bit. And I'm just looking across, and I'm thinking, I so want to go up and talk with him, but there was just something. He's in the lounge, and he needed his private time. Right. So I, I, I thought I'm going to leave him alone, as tempting as it was. And unfortunately, five other people in the lounge ran over, and they all <laughs> they all went over, and they're all talking with him and getting his autograph. And then, and then the bodyguards kind of politely pushed them back. And I was the only one in the lounge who didn't do that, even though I really was dying to do so. <laughs> and, and then this just is about character. He looks across at me, knowing that I left him alone, and he points his finger and he says, come over here. And I get up and I walk over and I introduce myself. And he says, don't you want to take a photo with me? And, you know, he didn't let anyone else take a photo. Wow. And because I left him alone, he said, don't you want to take a photo with me? I said, actually, I would love to, but wow. I really didn't want to disturb you in your private time. And he said, that's why we're going to take a photo together. That's awesome. And, and, and then I said, I just want you to know how much you, you've inspired me my whole life, uh, you know, as a moral leader, the things you've done. And we just all want you to know how grateful we are for the impact you've made helping humanity all over the world, right? At least I got to make that comment to him yeah. in a three-minute conversation. And then we stood up with his hand shaking and I have a photo with him, you know, with my arm around him. And then he says, no, that's not the photo we're taking. Make a fist. <laughs> I make a fist. And then he puts his my fist on his cheek and he makes two fists and then he has his bodyguard take a photo where I'm punching wow. him in the face. 
And he, he said, now that's something you'll remember. And I just said, meeting you is something I'm always going to remember. So, so these, this is someone who's larger than life. He's even better than you think. That, that, was, that was my inspirational yeah. comment. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So jealous of that opportunity as well. And, you know, now that he's passed as well, I mean, obviously very much missed, but just a good, you know, exemplify, exemplification, example of character as well. You know, all the things that you talk about here in terms of leadership as well. I mean, he was a great showman, obviously a great sportsman. But what he did as well, I mean, we compare that to where we are today with, I know we're just around the corner with Mayweather and McGregor. It's just like a different, to me, it's, it's a different league entirely, isn't it, in terms of it, 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 You know, it, it, when, I, when I was as a, as a young kid getting involved in politics, there were statesmen. And, yeah. and, and, and now it's very hard to find the statesmen. There are very few around the world. I, I would say King Abdullah of Jordan is one. But there are very few yeah. that are really committing their whole life for what they believe in and their people. And the same with business leaders and celebrities. So these are some examples of amazing people. But, you know, it, it, you know, all entrepreneurs know you have to have a lot of confidence in yourself and believe in what you're doing because you're going to get punched around and you're going to have so many failures along the way. If you don't believe in what you're doing, if, if you're not a builder with that vision, you're never going to make it. So confidence is a natural thing of leadership. It's different than an ego where, yeah. where you talk down to people. So, you know, we all have our egos in order to build businesses, but we have to be so sensitive never to make other people uh, feel less than, than the inspirations that they are as well. And, and that's a really subtle difference you see in different different business and political leaders, I think. For sure. It's easy to interpret that arrogance as, as a sign of confidence, isn't it? When we see um, there's been examples recently in business, and I won't name them, of people who have acted arrogantly and you feel that, well, they're the big man. But actually, it's often the opposite, isn't it? What's going on inside? And it's these people that we talk about. So let's talk about leadership because then we can sort of branch that into the tech side of things and what you're doing with the startups as well and just what's going on in Asia at the moment. I want to go back to that photo, Paul, if I may. Apollo 11. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there, let's talk about that because we've just got to talk about it because I think, you know, that okay. fascinates me because let's put this into context. 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago now to the day, or a couple of years short, with technology which would have been less advanced than your average iPhone. Exactly. You know, they've got a team of people to the moon, right? And what's fascinating about that, okay, there's all the, the brain power that went into that. You know, the best young blood of that generation were working on that challenge. How do we get to people to the moon by the end of this decade, right? Because that was the challenge set out. We're going to get put a man on the moon by the end of the 60s. However, it's not just that, it's the risk that people took, right? I mean, that was a huge risk to take because they were venturing into unknown territory. You know, there was a risk of time and money, but also human life, right? So I'm fascinated about that. I mean, your thoughts on that, is that something that you ever think about today when, you know, you look at what happened back then do you feel and it's easy to get nostalgic isn't it and think oh you know that mm. sort of american era is over now i mean how do you feel about that when you look back and see things like apollo 11 in you know in the real you know in the analog well, well you, you you've had half of it you know as as a, a kid to the present i love star trek i love Battlestar galactica i love all these shows because they make us dream about what the future is going to look like and and when you're at the Air and Space Museum and you see this little tiny capsule right. the size of half a bedroom and you're it is thinking, tiny, right? I mean, yeah, you know. and, and, and you're thinking three men sat in that, <laughs> launched from the Earth, went around the moon, then with the lunar module, the LEM, they literally, two of them landed on the moon, got out, walked around, planted the flag and then came back to the capsule and then the capsule had to return them to earth and then go through that fire with the heat shield. The only difference between burning up and landing in the, in the ocean and then having to be found in the ocean. Yeah. And, and as you said, today's iPhone is significantly more powerful than the circuitry used in that entire space program. So the capsule and the lamp. So it, it just reminds you what we're capable of. But it's also a bit of a shaming of how, as a society, we became, so, you know, in 10 years from the challenge, we went to the moon. 
by the, you know, within five years after that, we were driving solar-powered dune buggies on the moon. Mm. And, and, and then we stopped. And, and then the shuttle is an airplane. But we could have easily gone to Mars within 10 to 15 years from that date. We got internally focused with the Internet and with consumer items. And the Internet's powerful. And AI is something we should probably end with later because I, I would like to address it. But... Mm. It's only now we're getting back and rechallenging ourselves to go to Mars. And, 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 you know, the new heroes, you know, two people that I really admire. One, of course, Jeff Bezos. It's not that he's just changing the supply chain. He has the largest cloud network of any company in the world. So it, plus he has his own space program. Oh, yeah. Not forgetting. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he's transformational in many ways. But my hero is Elon Musk because this is someone who ties in exactly to your story with a spaceship. He's not even thinking about how much money he's going to make. He's thinking about how he's going to help humanity transform. And he literally created the Tesla, which I got to drive two years ago, and it's just an amazing car. He has the largest battery factory in the world at a cost of over $7 billion in Reno, Nevada, if we had a hundred of those factories around the world linked to solar energy, we would be energy independent across the world. So he's visionary. His SpaceX program has already docked with the space station three times, and he's already planning you know, to build colonies on Mars separate from NASA. He's already taken a launch vehicle that can re-land instead of being destroyed, changing the entire cost. Uh, NASA couldn't do it, Russia couldn't do it, China couldn't do it, but he could do it. And he has Solar City, and now he has his new tunnel train. This is one human being who, in 10 or 15 years, is changing society and our lives in so many ways. So, yes, we need more heroes. We need more entrepreneurs. We need visionaries who don't just think about how to create a gadget and make money, but how they can do things that are good in business, but transformational for society as well. Hmm. And, and there are some, but we need a lot more of those. And hopefully we're going to find those in the new generation. Well, let's talk about it in the context of these new technologies emerging now. I know you have a keen interest in AI and also cryptocurrencies, which are, you know, I suppose there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of hype about these technologies. So there's there's a lot of discourse as well about what they could and couldn't be. So curious to know about your views on that. We'll get to that. I'll put this into context for myself. I mean, I actually studied artificial intelligence. Really? Yeah, at university in the early 90s. That's unheard of. It is unheard of. I mean, you know, because I thought, wow, this is really fascinating. Wow. You know, I love computers and I love psychology. It's like, you know, happy days. And I studied that. Unbelievable. And when I – this is the story, Paul. I graduated – and I went to the career, you know, they would have these career services, these career advisories at the university, and I'd go there and they'd I'd say, okay, so what did you study? I said, well, AI. <laughs> what the hell is that? Well, I'm not sure you can get a job with AI today. So you know what they suggested <laughs> to me? They said, why don't you go and teach English in Asia? <laughs> no way. I mean, compare that to now. I mean, if I was graduating in AI. You were now, 20 years ahead of your time. Come on. Well, that, there's, there's a point at which you're too ahead of the time, right? So. That's kind of curious. I mean, I know everybody, AI is the thing now. I mean, I've watched it since the 90s and how it's changed and, you know, what it was back then and what it is now and so on. So it's just always fascinated me. Most of us didn't even understand what it is until the last few years and you were already studying it 20 years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it has, I mean, the fundamentals have remained the same, you know, but I guess what's changed is that access to, you know, computational power which just makes all those kind of ideas that they had about ai possible back then it was sort of you know let's model some cockroaches you know that around. <laughs> that's what it was and then they say okay what's the purpose in this well we don't quite know we know how cockroach sense chemicals or noise or whatever that's what it was back then so no wonder people didn't really have an interest in well it. you have a unique insight into it the rest of us are going through our steep learning curve huh yeah i'm just curious about you know you, i mean you you talk, mentioned ai you're involved in the cutting edge side of things. You come from a supply chain background, which is in a way, I know, I mean, people don't really appreciate what supply chain is all about and logistics, but you know, it holds everything together. I mean, you look at Amazon as an example, you know, what they really are as, as a company is, is more logistics than anything else. Right. And it's not the sexy side of technology because you don't see it. 
but you know you are involved in a whole bunch of different technologies and when you see things like ai cryptocurrency you talk about vision and leadership and risk and so on do you see people i mean put elon musk aside for example do you see people doing exciting things in that space that you think wow that's really sort of pushing the envelope on this or do you see a lot you know the temptation is still to go okay i'm going to build this app because you know if i build this app i can sell it for five million you know people coming in with that kind of attitude towards building startups well, the, the answer is both, but I mean, Graham, you're way ahead of your time 20 years ago and the rest of us are, you know, frantically getting into this in the last few years. If I can segment, you know, the logistics industry is still very traditional. A lot of people use the word supply chain and they're still shipping, freight forwarding, trucking, warehousing. And, and so one of my things in this industry, having built different companies in this space and working with, you know, great talent, great teams, and customers is, is that we, we've evolved way past that, but most people in the industry don't realize that we've gone from logistics to integrated logistics to supply chain management already 15 years ago. Then it should be demand chain management, which is what Dell was already building, uh, and, and, and what, you know, uh, Walmart and others are doing. And then when, when we move forward beyond that, what Amazon is doing now, uh, it's what I call dynamic value networks because it's not a chain anymore. It's severely focused to IT. And now the flow of capital, the flow of information, and the physical flow of product, all three move in parallel and have to be integrated. And, and, and so, you know, years ago, I, I kind of played with things like using the water as a floating warehouse or regional SCM hubbing where we change part of the manufacturing process at midpoint before feeding to the countries. But we're way beyond that now. So, um, you know, the technology is already using advanced algorithms. We're already using predictive forecasting. Then when you get into what Amazon's doing, they're already bringing in the first surge of artificial intelligence to understand every consumer. So they know what you're going to buy before you know you're going to buy it. And, 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 and it's just phenomenal. You know, they, they did a patent in February of 2016, and they're testing trucks that load with chemicals and do 3D printing. So they're printing the product you want to buy while they're delivering it to your house. Wow. You know, now, now it's limited products, but this is going to go much wider. There's already uh, technology, you know, where in the future you're going to go online and you're going to see a th three-dimensional you, and you're going to try on clothes perfectly fitted to you, and you're going to be able to print these things in your house. This is not far away. It, it, the technology is already there. It's just bringing the cost down. So, you know, to me, logistics supply chain have evolved into a much more advanced model. We have a group, a nonprofit called Supply Chain Asia run by Paul Lim. Uh, you know, I'm involved on the board of that. And, and we were trying to get the whole community to look at changing things. So uh, he, he created this month, in fact, it's being launched. Uh, with a minister attending uh, a playground where you actually put on goggles and you're trained in a virtual factory walking around virtually. And and uh, a friend of mine, YCH, uh, Robert Yap, he has drones flying around his warehouse doing the inventory stock take. So we're already past that point. And Amazon is just at the cutting edge. Uh, but I, I believe there's a convergence in, in technology, uh, fi finance, physical logistics, it's all converging and into creating a new model. Um, addressing a little wider your question, um, and sorry to meander a bit because it's a really exciting area and you were in it far ahead of me, is um, I was just involved on one of the five B20 task forces. B20 is, is basically uh, meeting over 10 months to put together the policy agenda recommendations for the G20 Heads of State Summit. And it was hosted by Germany this year. So, you know, we flew out and uh, our task force focused on the future of employment and education. And uh, we had different meetings and we put together policy paper. But it, it was shock therapy because it reminded me far more than I understood before that AI and robotics – you know, it's coming much, much faster than, than anyone is prepared for. Most CEOs in the world, sorry to say, are thinking, 
How do I grow my company for the next two or three years? Uh, you know, how do I get my bonus? The boards are thinking that way. The headhunting firms are responding to their clients. But the next 10 years, uh, I think you'll agree, the next 10 years is going to be the biggest transformation economically in the history of the world, more than agriculture to industrial revolution. And, and, and the speed of this, the dislocations, the opportunities for startup disruptors, there's nothing like this in the history of the world coming up. Even the singularity, you know, when Elon Musk and Bill Gates say around 2035, we may have AI exceed human intelligence linked to the entire cloud network with robots and, and, and you know, deployed around the world. This stuff isn't 500 years in the future. So, you know, I, I, I've been exposed to some amazing information, as I'm sure you have. And we need everyone to realize this stuff is coming much faster. We all have to learn about this. And the cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, the 4,000 plus other currencies that are developing, some with real potential, some with, you know, uh, a gambling survival rate that will be narrow. You know, every single industry that exists will be severely disrupted I believe within the next five years and will be reinvented. And we were sitting there thinking, what are the skills the, the next generation are going to need? We need to prepare people now. I'm on, a, I'm on Thunderbird School of Global Management Advisory Board and SPJ out of India. And, you know, the question, you know, coming up is how do we train people for jobs that don't exist? but with skills that will allow them to adapt into that world. So if I'm an entrepreneur, you know, they just have an amazing opportunity because all the opportunities are going to be driven by the disruptors now. And, and, and that's, what, that's what Bezos was. That's what Elon Musk were. You know, that's what Victor Fung was. They, they were all early, earlier generation disruptors. But, um, you know, we, we, we're going to have a lot of disruption and some will be real and some will be uh, hype. But it's starting now. And, and I think being an entrepreneur, there's never been a more exciting time to play this space anywhere in the world, but especially in Asia mm. because of the, you know, the consumer demographics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just take any market in Asia. I mean, Japan accepted. But you take some of the high growth markets. I mean, even if you go to a place like Indonesia, where I mean, most people don't appreciate how big that market is, for example. Nearly 300 million people and 50% are under 30. So mm. you've got a really interesting next wave coming through. It's juggling with all this information in Asia, what you've just said, you're talking about a large-scale disruption. There are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. Based on what you know, kind of nailing your colors to the mast a little bit, maybe a bit unfair, I'm ambushing you here, but who do you think the winners and losers are going to be in the, the next five or 10 years with this disruption that you're talking about? What kind, rather than actual specific companies, but maybe what kind of people, what kind of mindsets are going to win and what kind of mindsets are going to be phased out? Well, I think first it, by country, China is going to be a major power in technology, but because of the great firewall, they're building unbelievable talent but but it's leveraging internally because of, of the firewall space but with a massive consumer market and then they're going to adapt that as they as they you know take that technology outside of China India has tremendous you know uh, programmer technology and entrepreneurial energy so as as India breaks out as a new rising economic power that's going to be another major breakout point and Singapore, uh, you know, being here and, and having been involved with, you know, s interacting with some of the government committees in the past, Singapore is a, is going to be a virtual network orchestration center. They're, they're, they're just moving so fast with the smart city initiative and other things as a small dynamic economy, but to build uh, creative things that, that will literally be invented and controlled here, but executed in the other countries where the real markets are. So these are three power points. Then you see South Korea, of course, being very dynamic. Japan looking how to, to reinvent itself, uh, with robotics especially. And then other places like Vietnam and, and, and Thailand and Indonesia. So it, it, it's tremendous for the countries. 
I think the next trillionaire, the first trillionaire in the world, will be the person who leapfrogs the AI space. Mm. And, 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 and that's gonna, would he be Asian? It, 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 it's gonna be, I think it's going to be Asian or American. And that person who becomes a trillionaire is going to build an AI capability that leapfrogs. Mm. And then it, it's going to literally create a lot of political and economic uh, disruptive uh, responses because it, it's so much power. Yeah. And so exciting as well because – in a way, it's unknown, right? Because we don't know what it is that they are going to be disrupting. And that's what's exciting about Asia, isn't it? Especially when you talk about this younger generation coming through, the, the demographics and so on. Is for them, maybe, you know, they have a worldview or a way of doing things which for them is just the default position. But for us, it's, you know, we kind of like, well, you know, we've got years and years of legacy history here to undo and unlearn. Can, can I give you a quick example? Just, just... Go for of these of these amazing uh, the amazing Asian talent across all these countries. There was a student in Singapore that I met, um, mentored a bit, but so talented, um, and 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 you know we worked on it, and he got accepted to Vanderbilt, got a four year scholarship, graduated high in his class, uh, got into global conferences. He came back for a summer, and we had this haze that hit from the rainforest burning in Indonesia, this dark smoke that came over for a week. And and he literally sat at Starbucks and he says, uh, we don't have the, the N95 masks that people need to protect them. Uh, I need to deal with that uh, tonight. And he went back and he created a network worldwide and he had people buying the N95 masks and flying it in at their expense to Singapore. And then he created a network of 350 volunteers and within 48 hours, he was distributing these masks all over Singapore for students and for the elderly wow. when we had a shortage and, and the government was doing a great job, but it was, but, but this was a supplement and he was recognized literally by the Minister of Defense and the Prime Minister's office. And, and then he went on to create two startups, the Tech Society with another student that went to SMU, uh, Jeremy and Jackson. And, and so, so Jeremy now is doing his PhD program at USC, but you know, he's just a great example of entrepreneurs that are going to be building crazy things in the future. And there are so many of them. Yeah. Um, there, there's a company called Openport that I work with, which is a mid-career, uh, business professional, an expat living in Hong Kong, and he wants to disrupt the trucking space and make it visible and, and trackable and take out that hidden cost of 20, 22%. So he literally started this company just two years ago, and he's already in China, Hong Kong, uh, India, and Pakistan, uh, you know, bringing that solution out. So whether you're coming right from college or you're doing it, you know, mid-career, these are just cool examples of people that are that are going to break out and be impactors going forward. And there's a, a group called the Cairo Society out of Silicon Valley. Um, it's now global in 50 countries. I'm an advisory board uh, of the Southeast Asia part of it. But it's, it's run by brilliant young entrepreneurs, and they're going into the top universities, and they're identifying the best startups. And, and then they're saying, by invitation only, you can be considered for the Cairo Society, and if you get on board, we'll, we'll connect you with mentors, we'll connect you with angel capital, but more importantly, we're going to create a controlled collision where you're going to meet the best and brightest other entrepreneurs in different spaces on a regular basis and build your own networks to build faster momentum to what you do. And this is now, you know, in eight or nine years, this is now a whole global movement, so there are just so many ways of engaging this talent uh, and Asia. It's just very, very exciting to see the level of talent in Asia and all of these countries breaking out in the future. And of course, Singapore is doing a good job creating, uh, you know, unique incentives for these startup communities as well as uh, China and other places in India. Yeah. I love these stories. And I think these are great examples and more opportunities to share them, the better for everybody because, 
it's always been a criticism in the past, especially from my, from my generation, maybe less so for younger people now, is that, you know, well, Asia, they're great at copying things. You know, they don't really have that sort of entrepreneurial verve, that creative problem-solving skills, whatever it is, that creativity that we have in the West. But you just go and lift the lid now on what's going on in Asia. And as you, as you show from these examples, there's plenty of that now, especially coming from these younger entrepreneurs coming through who maybe, you know, their families have a different attitude towards risk and so on. But this is a whole new conversation as well. That's sort of part two, follow up talking about that entrepreneurial. And, 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 and Graham, the one thing that, that we, we had discussions on at the, uh, uh, the B20 task force for G20 was if you're a leader of a company today and you want to protect that company, you need reverse mentoring. You literally need to hire these bright young radicals coming fresh out of school and you need to engage where they're teaching you about digital media and social media and their ideas because they're unconstrained. So, you know, if you want to build your company, transform your company at any level of leadership, reverse mentoring is a critical experience. And I know you're getting that through the dialogues that you have meeting with so many different people. One of the reasons, you know, I took the risk of of going from just pure supply chain industry into working with startups is because I'm back in school. They're teaching me so much. So we know where we can help them in, in different ways, but every day we're all students with an infinite learning curve. And, and, and that's what's so exciting, but we all have to collaborate in order to, you know, keep building knowledge and being able to have an impact in some small way. That's Paul Bradley, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. Paul Bradley, Chairman and CEO of Caprica International, amongst other projects and other learning opportunities. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Real pleasure. Been a real inspiration. We'll take a part two as well, because this conversation's just getting going. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of questions we have now about this that... Paul has planted seeds in our mind. I mean, there's so much interesting going on there. Leadership, entrepreneurialism, everything associated with Asia. He's in a very good position to, you know, really see it from his experience as well, as well as what he's doing. Because, I mean, I love that. When people say that they have they've have extensive careers, but then they, they are willing to go back and put themselves at the beginning again. That, for me, is a sign of a, a real true leader. And I suppose that's something that, you know, you've learned from the people that you've been mentored on, that that they're always willing to listen and learn right so paul before we close i am sure the listeners want to find out more about you where would they go and check you out can you give us a, a link maybe they can go and find out a bit more about you and your story um i'll provide you with my linkedin page i think that's the easiest way to connect through linkedin and my website is uh www.capricinternational.com and LinkedIn is uh, Paul Bradley at Caprick International. Fantastic. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Paul Bradley, thank you so much. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.